Okay, this is volume two of the third Friday's podcast from uh, quarantine. Uh, my name is Christian Cison, uh, you know, and we really do this podcast uh, from the kill room at the office, but getting a little bit more used to our uh, remote capabilities. Uh, a recap from last month is uh, more COVID-19 issues, right? The board beefed up their response and, and their update to how uh, issues are going to be litigated and handled before law judges and the board panel. And we provided uh, a practical way to go about handling them. So as we delve into the whole business as usual theme that, you know, that we're, we're telling clients, right, it, it makes more sense to actually revert back to, uh, you know, what is happening in our world outside of COVID-19. Now, we can't forget about it completely. So uh, there is a board panel decision we're going to discuss. Uh, but my guests today are uh, Jeremy Janice and Adam Lowenstein. Uh, welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Now, Adam, uh, you know, I guess uh, there are a slew of different uh, things I could say uh, that reference, you know, someone's first time on the show, but we'll keep it a little bit uh, PG. But uh, because it's your first time, why don't we start with you uh, with a case that you uh, litigated before the appellate division. Um, talk to uh, our listeners uh, exactly what happened in your case. So basically, this was uh, a claim where we had litigated at the initial level. Uh, ultimately, the board uh, law judge established the claim. Uh, we then appealed the establishment of the claim on the, on our argument uh, for why the claim should not be established. Uh, it was a fight between two employees. Uh, we felt that it was un unrelated to the work activity uh, and therefore we filed an appeal on that basis. Uh, we filed the RB89 along with our appeal. The board panel decision, uh, the board then found that they would not consider the appeal because box 15 on the RB89 did not give the specific date uh, as to when the objection was noted. Which so that's a crazy crazy outcome at first, right? And we think about that. Uh, it, when most of our clients think of us in court, you know, making these substantive arguments, right, as to why a case should not be established, right? So in your case. And, you know, Jeremy, the board comes back and says box 15 isn't checked. So like, you know, what is box 15 and, and why does it matter to the board? So box 15 is a box that uh, in which you're supposed to indicate when an exception was noted. They want it to be very specific, as specific as possible, what the exception was noted to, um, the date of the exception. Yeah, right. Like, and, and Adam, you know, we're going into court and we're appealing from a specific hearing and we're writing a brief, right? So like, you know, in my mind, like box 15 is rather useless as a way to, you know, to not hear appeal. So almost reeks of, of laziness. I mean, and, dare I say. And that's what we basically said in our, our appeal. Uh, the, the main thing is, and my argument was that box 15, the instructions for it did not say specify the date. It just said 
note when the exception was noted. So in our RB89, because there's another box at the top of the form that says, uh, specify the decision and the date that you're appealing from. So in box 15, we just said what our exception was and that it was noted at the time of the hearing. So my argument was that sufficiently says when the exception was noted and that fulfilled the requirement. Uh, the board uh, ultimately found that they would not hear the appeal for that reason. And then the board panel decision affirmed that, saying that there was no error of law or fact, uh, which again is ridiculous and just, as you said, sheer laziness of they just don't want to review the appeal. Think about in Corona world, right? Let's say you have like uh, a favorite deli, right? You want to get a sandwich and uh, they are not used to taking, to, uh, you know, takeout orders from you. And so you call ahead because you want to support a local business and you say, I would like these four sandwiches. I'll be there in 30 minutes. And they're like, great. Give them a credit card number. They scan it. Uh, you know, you get charged. So there's no contact and they're, you know, you make an agreement so that nice bag of five sandwiches are out in the doorstep waiting for you to pick up. Then when you go to the deli, you find no bag of sandwiches there. You open the door and ask them, why aren't my sandwiches here? And they say, oh, well, you didn't take number because that's when you come in and order. And it's like, well, we've been doing that for years. And our office is one of many offices on both sides that haven't been filling out box 15 in the way that the board suddenly uh, – wanted it to be filled out, even though the brief had it listed. So what, what do we tell the client when that happens? I'm like, what, how, how do we, how do we give that bad news to the client and, and, and move forward? Uh, I know when I got the decision, I said to them, you know, we're absolutely going to bring this to the next level because this is a ridiculous decision. Uh, it's been, you know, I, I did, notify them that the board had all of a sudden started this uh, trend uh, and that it happened quite a few times, but it was definitely something that was worth fighting and we have to bring this further on and, and get some sort of good law or good determination on this because to do something like that is very arbitrary and uh, there's no, no standing and no reasoning behind it. So then the client gets on board and we go to the appellate division and uh, what is the appellate division rule? I mean, I guess like I, we wouldn't be doing a podcast if it didn't have a bad result, right? So uh, our clients can can rest assured that this this is a good outcome for us. But what did what did the board panel say? Uh, the board panel basically said that the uh, not the board panel, sorry, the uh, appellate division basically said that the board and the board panel abused their discretion uh, in just saying that box fifteen was not properly filled out, and we're not going to consider your appeal. They, they cited our argument basically that uh, the other areas of the form said when the appeal, uh, when the exception was noted and what the argument was and that there was no specific instruction that the specific date had to be there. So the, the, the appellate division clearly agreed with all our points uh, and basically determined that the board was just being lazy. And you, you find a way to like, you know, 
get a result like this. And you know, the unfortunate thing is that, you know, an employer and carrier has to, uh, you know, really keep this decision, this bad decision, underlying bad decision at their feet and wait for the third department. Um, you know, what, what kind of takeaways can you give the client, um, you know, not just for their case, but for, for other cases, how can we use this uh, to really, um, you know, work on other files, give advice to, you know, our listeners today, any, anything that this decision, you know, while favorable, can we use for, for, for cases uh, elsewhere? I think with this specific decision, uh, since there were uh, so many cases that were getting ruled on the same way that the board was saying, we're not going to consider your appeal. I think we have a good argument now to go back and review some of those cases and see if we now should reopen those files and see if we can uh, get those decisions overturned, citing this this particular case now. Yeah, it's not it's not um, a bad point, right? I mean, there are cases out there, right, that that may may even be awaiting a, a poor decision from the board panel. Uh, if those are are one of your cases, even if it's not from our office, right? The case is Monet. M-O-N-E versus Deer Park Sand and Gravel Corp. You don't have an appellate division publication citation, but the slip opinion citation is 2020 New York slip op 02228. And that's uh, a decision that just came out on April 9th. uh, So it's barely a month old. I think that, you know, the, the abuse of discretion is, is very, very commonplace in, in most administrative areas of law. And it, it was good to have, uh, you know, some teamwork between our office and a client that can uh, get on the same page and say, you know, we're not we're going to put our foot down, uh, even though uh, the appellate division process is timely and costly uh, to right a wrong. Um, so uh, good work on that, Adam. It's a good result for the client. Uh, we'll move to our second good result, um, really worked on by uh, Jeremy Janis of uh, of our office. And uh, that claim, Jeremy, g- give us the pertinent facts of that case and, and, you know, what is the background that led to our involvement? Okay, so this is a case um, involving a home health care aide who got hurt in 2012. At that time, uh, in 2012, she was working for... Um, our client, who was a county agency, but uh, who leased her, essentially leased her to uh, Aliyah Home Care. At some point in 2012, before the date of the accident, that relationship was terminated. So she was no longer uh, an employee of the leasing agency, but rather directly to the home health care agency. Um, at some point, litigation on the issue of employee-employer relationship was the proper employer was started after she hurt herself in 2012. A number of hearings happened through 2015 to 2016, at which time the law judge determined that our client, the leasing agency, was not the proper employer and um, the other company was the proper employer. Um, Each one of those, at that time, um, they the other employer was not represented. They never sent a representative to any one of the hearings, but they did receive every notice of decision. Um, and in so addition, to- they they didn't they didn't receive anything, right? And uh, you know, we can kind of 
like read the tea leaves here where they're going to cry foul and uh, use that you know old adage we we learn in law school that doesn't really exist right like ignorance of the law is not excuse not not a perfect uh, analogy there uh, I'll admit but they're basically saying like you know all these decisions that I had a copy of should be overturned for these reasons that I could have advanced had I showed up to the hearing, right? Correct. And, and they waited actually till 2018 to file an application. Essentially, they file an application to reopen. Um, and they bring some new um, facts to the table stating that they relied upon our client saying, He's, we'll take care of it. Just trust us. And um, they file this application with the board. The board immediately rejects it, stating it's untimely. There's no reason you could have uh, not brought this appeal at the time it happened. Um, so eventually they go to the third department, which is where we stepped in and we filed a respondent's brief. And the respondent's brief really goes into the procedural heart where, you know, um, you know, how many bites at the apple, right, can a person have when uh, they've had their day in court and they've chosen not to take it? So, you know, from a procedural perspective, again, you know, maybe it's it's like uh, not something that is readily applicable to each client's case, right? But the appellate division comes down and says, you know, board panel's right. Like you can't you can't relitigate this years and years after the fact, um, and. You know, the only thing that's kind of interesting is, you know, the new evidence, right? So mm -hmm. they say, I'm relying on this. Could you see a situation where you reopen the board, reopen it at the board level? And they say, you know, okay, I, I want to hear this. Is that possible? I think, I, I believe there has to be some finality. So initially, first of all, you're supposed to file an affidavit. That affidavit's supposed to say, um, Here's a reason why we were unable to get this evidence at the time it was rendered. I think in a case like this, when it was clear they didn't even show up, there was not even an effort to ever produce that evidence. So I think in a case like this, it's not applicable. But yes, in some circumstances where there's an additional investigation that might allow it. Right. Like, you know, it's it's a little bit similar to, to paying without prejudice to pursuant to 20, Section 21A, right? You know, if we don't know uh, whether, whether we want to deny a claim, sometimes we pay benefits to a claimant uh, and we have a year uh, up to, you know, the, that first date of payment, a year after to, to deny the claim. And clients ask me all the time, you know, why don't we do this? We can investigate the claim for an entire year. And really... A decision like that has some practical effect to it, right? So in your case, Jeremy, if they want to reopen it, right, they have to give a good reason why, and they have to explain why they couldn't have done this. And in a 21A case, I like to think, well, if you're going to wait the year to investigate it, aren't you going to have to state on the record why you didn't file it and it file denial initially? What is a judge going to have sympathy over us if we pay for a year and then on day 364, we, we deny benefits? 
Like, you know, there is a practical like way of doing things. And, you know, in your case, Jeremy, uh, which uh, for our clients, the case citation is 2020 New York slip op 02696 Zuniga versus Alaya Home Care Inc. You know, employer-employee relationship is not just a straightforward issue, right? If someone comes to one of you guys and says, who does Lois law firm employ? Like, you know, I would like to hope we've all been here for a couple of years. We can rattle off a bunch of names and talk for a while. But if it were that easy, then there wouldn't be a trial, right? Employer-employee relationship uh, almost requires us to prove to the judge how it's impossible for the claimant to be employed by us because he's employed by someone else, right? Going beyond the burden of proof that, you know, a claimant has to go through in his or her case. And I think that it's a good demonstration of, you know, what we need to do from the outset of a case, right? So uh, another good result, Jeremy, uh, on that uh, Zuniga case that went to the third department, we'll transition now to some, uh, you know, current events in our world. Um, I know you guys are, 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 you know, on the front lines uh, in hearings every day. You know, we have virtual capability. The board's now requiring that every hearing be virtual. And we're at a point now where uh, adversaries are going to use different cases that may come up against us. And, and the one case I'm seeing from adversaries is the case of Bowers versus New York City Transit Authority. And in that case, a claimant was found uh, to have a tentative rate with regard to CCP. And the judge finds that permanency is joined. So attachment and uh, permanency are continued for development of the record. Now, just giving you that information, guys, would you think that that is a normal thing to do, or is that just far out of range of what we usually deal with in cases that, uh, that turn to that point of the, uh, the, the, the life cycle? I would say that's far out of the, the normal. I mean, uh, the time that the claimant reaches permanency is the last opportunity for us to raise labor market attachment. Um, usually a work search is ordered and it's set down for testimony on loss of wage earning capacity as well as attachment. Right. So the only the only um, difference between like a normal case in that case is the fact that, you know, we have a tentative rate. Right. Because, uh, you know, Adam, like what what is a tentative rate? Like does a tentative rate give the claimant an obligation to do anything? If. I'll play devil's advocate here. If I'm claimant's counsel and we have a tentative rate and the treating doctor saying total disability, uh, you know, my argument's going to be claimant's not obligated to look for work because the, doc the treating doctor is opining total. And I know claimant's attorneys all the time say, oh, they're entitled to rely upon what their doctor says. So a tentative rate is different than a temporary partial rate in that it's a tentative and possibly can be modified up or down at some point once uh, a degree of disability is determined. I wouldn't even say you need to play devil's advocate. I would agree with you from a defense <laughs> perspective, right? If it's tentative, it's what well, you know. What's the what's the meaning of that? It means it's not fixed, right? We can go back and, and change it. Uh, and if you set a tentative rate, that means you know at any point the parties can come back, like you said, 
modify the award and what result could come out of it. It could theoretically be a total disability in which the claimant would not have to look for work. So to find a tentative rate means uh, the claimant shouldn't have to look for work. And, you know, maybe like uh, it's just one of those things where uh, I, I agree with <laughs> claimants' counsels. I mean, you can't find many uh, uh, issues where, where I do, but ultimately, you know, in this, this Bowers case, board panel directs it, you know, kind of like what you mentioned, Jeremy, uh, you know, permanency and attachments are last, you know, opportunity to really uh, raise this defense. The claimant, you know, uh, throws a fit and I, surprisingly it goes all the way to the third department. I mean, to, to go on this issue is really something. And the third department uh, gives a decision that makes sense to me, right? Uh, that uh, because the tentative rate was never fixed, then the claimant never had to look for work. But one sentence in dicta, right, says that the claimant is not obligated to look for work until a permanent partial disability arises. And I've seen adversaries start to use this as a reason for attachment never to be raised ever. So... I wanted to, you know, talk about it with you guys because, you know, when we go into court and our adversaries, you know, use this gamesmanship, right? Like, how prepared can we be, right? We know that in April 2017, the law changed to say that you cannot raise attachment after a claimant is classified with a permanent partial disability. So if Bowers were to say that attachment is not possible at temporary partial disability, would labor market attachment as a defense exist at all? No. <laughs> yeah, it'd be very <laughs> difficult to raise it. Right? So like, if, like, is there a temporary partial disability, permanent partial disability, and then purgatory, right? Like, what, when, when do we get to raise it? It's just like this, this weird dichotomy and balance of, of uh, applying one one area or, or dicta sentence to fit your position. And, uh, you know, it, it's just, you know, a reminder to, to our clients who are listening out there that anytime you hear the word Bowers and attachment, be ready to distinguish it because the claimant's just trying to fool you. So from that, we, we head to our, our final case. It's a, it's, a, it's a board panel decision, so not the same persuasiveness as a third department decision, but because you know we can't get enough of COVID-19, uh, why not just talk about it for a very little bit? Uh, it's a matter of uh, Republic Services of New York, Inc. And uh, you know, Adam, I think you can kind of touch on this and have some experience with, with what happened here because a claimant was directed to produce work search prior to quarantine restrictions. Carrier files an RFA2, gets before the judge and says, uh, you have to suspend benefits. And, you know, some judge who are feeling, you know, uh, rather unfair uh, to carriers or, or maybe sympathetic to a claimant uh, directs uh, a final opportunity or um, decides not to uh, suspend benefits. Uh, and then the case gets returned during COVID restrictions. And the judge says, well, I'm not going to touch the issue because the board's position is that an employment search is not required. Now, you know, I'm, I, I'm directing this to you, Adam, because I, you've had a little bit of uh, success with this kind of issue 
um, you know, in, in court. So uh, explain, you know, what has happened in your cases just very briefly uh, with respect to this issue. Okay, so the ones that I've been able to successfully argue uh, were when a work search was directed prior to the COVID restrictions being put into place. Um, generally, they were falling uh, Jan December, January uh, hearings where they were directed with a 60-day return date. Um, some of them did even stretch. One case I'll, I'll tell you about stretched a little bit further uh, in terms of the 60-day restriction fell just after the COVID restriction started. Um, but I made the argument that the work search was directed prior to the COVID restrictions and nothing was submitted as far as a work search prior to the COVID restrictions being started. And that was the deadline. Um, the one judge had stated that, yes, the deadline for the work search did fall after COVID restrictions had started, uh, but it was only a week or so. And the claimant should have had something, shown some effort prior to COVID restrictions. So I, I, I know a lot of these judges are just saying, oh, the board told me not to address it, so I'm just going to, you know, let it hold an attachment and let the carrier file an RFA2 later on. Meanwhile, the carrier is going to be paying this entire time. So I would make the argument every time you can that it was directed prior to the restrictions and some effort should have been shown prior to the restrictions being sent down. Yeah, that's a great argument, right? Like, imagine if the claimant was not required to look for work during these COVID restrictions, which is, you know, I guess it's actually the case, they would essentially have to say that if they had that extra week, then they would have had a bunch of work. And then even if that were the case, we'd be saying that this doesn't fly under American Axle, right? You can't look for work within a week's period and say that you're attached to the labor market. So, uh, you know, good, good argument on your end, uh, really um, uh, demonstrating the board's position here, even though a judge seemed to kind of apply the facts correctly and, and in line with, with how we feel attachment should be dealt with. But in this case, Matter of Public Services in New York, Inc., board panel came down very quickly on the carrier saying, OK, fine, we're, we're going to spend awards for. Uh, work search not provided during the COVID restrictions, but once COVID-19 starts, right, executive order, quarantine, stay at home, claim it's not required to, to look for work at all. And, you know, Jeremy, you've done many attachment trials in, in uh, you know, your career here. How many times have you cross-examined a claimant who produces work search with Indeed, with Monster? with Google, with Craigslist. Like how, how often does that happen? Almost every time. <laughs> Almost every time. And, you know, I don't know what's changed, right? And, you know, it would almost be easier to put forth an independent work search because I could say, oh, they're not hiring due to COVID. No one's hiring due to COVID. But they can't even do that. And it actually... You know, we were talking about in the last couple of months of, of how is this going to react? And clearly, you know, a board panel decision after a two-month appeal is, is a little bit uh, crazy in our world. And, and the takeaway that I, I propose to you guys, you know, what if a client is really hurt by this, right? 
how long are they going to have to wait for relief at the appellate division level for this to actually affect them? And like you said, Adam, like they're going to have to pay, right? Like to me, it looks like an administrative overreach that unfortunately has no practical uh, takeaway in our client's favor. You know, if the board's going to use its administrative discretion to say, claimant doesn't have to look for work, even though they can use their computer or smartphone at home, then it seems like carriers are just stuck until COVID-19 restrictions are, are lifted. But is there anything we can do to leverage a settlement at the board panel level by, by filing an appeal? I, I mean, I think an appeal could be filed uh, just just to note, and my, even my adjusters have said, hey, let's keep filing these RFA-2s. Let's let the other side know we're serious. We're going to aggressively litigate this. So if, if that one carrier decides, hey, I want to bring this to the next level, um, you know, could leverage a settlement in terms of maybe the other side says, hey, you know, carrier might have something on this. They might be able to overturn this since you didn't look for work, you didn't do anything. Uh, and that might make the claimant a little bit worried that their benefits might be cut off. So uh, they might want to delve into uh, a settlement at that point. Good. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. I think um, it, it's it's a reasonable effort to just see what happens, right? Uh, you know, what's, what's the harm uh, when, uh, you know, legal expenses are a drop in the bucket compared to an ongoing CCP. Uh, it, it's important to, to give practical advice in an impractical world. So uh, I think that's a great time to, to close. I wanna thank you gentlemen for, for uh, appearing today. So uh, for Jeremy Janice and, and Adam Lowenstein, uh, this is Christian Cisan reminding you to defend from day one. <laughs>